Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning, everyone. If you're new to the church, my name is Dave. Uh, it's my privilege to serve here as the lead pastor. And before I start the message this morning, just a couple words. One is I want to apologize for how cold it is in here. Uh, we really can't control the AC. And so I know that some of us, how many of you guys are loving how nice and cold it is in here? Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. How many of you are dying wishing you had brought a sweater to church? All right. So I, I apologize. It's not that we're not aware of it. It's just that we can't really do anything about it. So please bear with us. Hopefully it will keep you awake. Um, and the other thing I want to say is I know that there are some here at our church this morning for whom it is a fairly new experience to be at Harvest. You're visiting for the first, second, maybe third time. And I know that that's never an easy thing to walk into a church where you don't know a lot of people um, and you're feeling things out. I just want to welcome you with our whole hearts. We want to let you know we can't wait to get to know you better. Um, I believe that God brings people to a church for a reason. And you may not know right away what that reason is, but give it some time. Listen for God's voice and leading, and I think over time he'll let you know how it is and why it is that you happen to walk through our doors and be a part of this. And so I hope that that story will unfold in a powerful way in your life, and you will find a home here. The message I want to give this morning comes from the third letter Jesus wrote to seven churches in Asia Minor, what is today called Turkey. These were seven churches that were very prominent at the time, but he's not just writing to them. Because the challenges and problems that he's addressing in their churches are things that every church ever since has wrestled with at some time. And so it's important for us to acknowledge just how universal these issues are and how relevant they are to every church. And so if I could give a subtitle to this message, I think Jesus might have called the letter to Pergamum um, something like this, maybe no compromise, no compromise. Because what was happening to the church in Pergamum was that they were being torn apart spiritually by the little compromises they were making. Now, I'd say in general, the capacity to compromise is actually a good thing most of the time. Wouldn't you agree? It's this flexibility that comes with maturity where you don't have to win everything, but you seek the mutual good of as many people as possible, even if that means you have to get a little less so everyone can get a little more. And that's the idea of compromise. It's conceding a little ground so that there's maximum benefit for everyone. So I would say most of the time, it's good to compromise. But there are certain times when we should never, ever compromise because the stakes are too high and even a little bit of giving ground could have terrible consequences. I mean, for example, never, ever clean a loaded gun, right? That's one of those things you just never, ever do. Here's another one. Never, ever drink and drive. Just don't do it. And never, ever smoke at a gas station when you're pumping gas. That one I just came over because last week I saw a guy just puffing away while he's pumping gas at the gas station. So I, I decided not to fuel up there because I, I like living. But before I took off, just as a citizen with some concern, I pulled up to him and I said, hey, buddy, you really should put out that cigarette. And he was real snooty and said, you know that there's very little chance it's going to cause a fire. I'm like, all right, nice knowing you. There are certain things 
that are just rules we don't violate ever. You might get away with it one, two, maybe three times, but the one day you don't get away with it, the consequences are very dire. And so because the stakes are so high, sometimes compromise is the worst thing you can do. And Jesus pushes this message to the church of Pergamum because, listen, all seven churches that he wrote to were in cities that were very unfriendly to the Christian movement. But Pergamum was probably the city that received the harshest sentence or description from Jesus. Let me give you a little background on the city of Pergamum. Listen to what Jesus says about that city. In case you missed it, it's highlighted there in red. He calls it the city where Satan has his throne. And in case they missed it the first time, he goes, oh yeah, that's your city, the city where Satan lives. Now we know that Satan's in a lot of places, but for for Jesus to say Pergamum is where he has his house, that's really saying something. And here's why he had such harsh words for the city of Pergamum. Now, the city itself was pretty magnificent. This is, it's on a very flat plain, but all of a sudden, out of the middle of this flat plain is about a 1,000-foot-high conical hill. And on top of this hill is built what we call in the ancient world a necropolis, a little city that's high up on a mountain. It's not the place where everybody lives, but it's where all the cool buildings are gathered so that anybody approaching the city, this is the first thing you'd see. So just like you see the skyline of Chicago from miles away, any visitor approaching Pergamum would have seen this Acropolis rising magically out of the ground a thousand feet above the plain, and it was a magnificent city. Uh, this is an artist's rendering of what the Acropolis probably looked like. It's very close based on the ruins that are left behind and ancient descriptions. And anybody approaching the city would have looked at it and said, that is a power city. It was made with large chunks of stone, and it was, it was meant to say, hey, where you're about to enter, we don't mess around. This is the place where authority and power lives. For about 250 years, Pergamum had served as the capital of Asia Minor in the Roman Empire. In fact, the, the, they were the earliest city to join with the Romans in defeating everybody else that was the neighbors. And then at the end of that fight, they gave up their power to Rome and said, why don't you just rule everything? The, the Roman governor in Asia happened to make his residence in the city of Pergamum. And so as a result, the loyalty to Rome was off the charts. It was even more, it was greater than what the people in Smyrna, 65 miles south, were experiencing. The Christians in the other cities experienced some real danger, and the danger was the greatest on the one day a year where the, gov- where the um, emperor demanded some statement of loyalty. So once a year, everybody throughout the Roman Empire would have to declare at the temple to Caesar, Caesar is Lord. And this caused a lot of problems because a lot of the Christians would not and could not go along with that. And they paid a terrible price for their unwillingness to say Caesar is Lord. But that, that real danger occurred once a year for most of the cities. But because Pergamum was ground zero for emperor worship and for the love of Rome, the Christians in Pergamum faced danger and pressure every single day. You could not uh, avoid this fact that we are not part of this Roman system, that we refuse to call the Caesar in Rome our Lord. So that was one of the reasons that, that God was saying, that Jesus was saying to Pergamum, you live in a city where my enemy has great sway. But the other part of it is that the people in Pergamum were very, very enamored 
with the old Greek culture that existed under, under um, Alexander the Great and for many years before that. And so they still were very active in the worship of the Greek gods. And they saw themselves as something like the guardians of Greek culture in Asia. And so they still worshipped four of the Greek gods. Uh, the city was known for its worship of these, these four Greek gods. Here's a picture of the altar of Zeus. They've actually taken pieces of the ruins and then taken the measurements and recreated the whole darn thing in what's called now the Pergamum Museum in Berlin. If you ever go to Germany, this would be something worth seeing before you die in person. And it's built to scale, and it shows you just one of the magnificent structures that sat on top of the Acropolis in Pergamum. So the four gods that they worshipped were Zeus, who represented power, Athena, who represented wisdom, Dionysus, who represented virility, drunkenness, you know, all that stuff, earthly pleasure. And finally, Asclepius, who, if you're a physician, you know this guy, right? He's the Greek god of healing and medicine, and he represents health. Now, taken by themselves, these are four virtues that even Christians are trying to pursue. But when they are not linked to the one true God, these become four of the pillars of secular humanism. They represent what man celebrates apart from God, believing this is where our power and strength come from. And so because Pergamum was so steeped in all of this, it was a very hostile climate in which a person would try to pursue Jesus Christ as their one true God and Savior. In the midst of this, here's the best analogy I can give you. How many of you have wrestled before, not just playing around, but like competitively? Anybody? So I, I, do, I wasn't on the team, but my gym teacher was the wrestling coach when I was in high school. And so I wrestled a lot. I mean, a lot, because he's lazy. He just, uh, you guys wrestle. And he walked out of the room. We never knew what he was doing, but we, we, we wrestled a lot. And I love wrestling the guys who were stronger than me. It's just something in me. I like that feeling of like going against, I got beat a lot. But when you wrestle someone bigger than you and they get a good hold on you, Every little move that you concede a little room, that good wrestler will squeeze you, exploit that little bit of of room that you give until pretty soon, like a boa constrictor, they're just squeezing, you can't do anything. And that's what it's like to live in Pergamum or in any hostile environment, is that every little concession, every little compromise you make will be exploited by the stronger opponent who will not let it go. They will squeeze and squeeze and squeeze until you can't take it anymore. And so there are a few things we learn from this letter Jesus wrote to this church in a very hostile environment. Some warnings to a church that has to try to stand up for Christ in a city or in an environment and a culture that is very hostile to the ways of Jesus Christ. So let me give you the first of these warnings Jesus gives. He says to them, beware the blind side. Beware the blind side. In the passage that Jeff recited... Jesus mentions the teaching of Balaam and what he did to influence Balak. Now, that's an old story. It's a fascinating story that comes from the time right after Israel was led out of Egyptian slavery under the leadership of Moses. Some of you are very familiar with that story. It's recorded for us in Numbers 22 to 25. And it's a fascinating story where where, uh, after the Israelites left Egypt, they were a pretty formidable force. They had about 600,000 armed fighting men among them. The estimates are they had about 2 to 3 million people traveling together in this massive cluster, and they wandered for 40 years through the wilderness. 
The problem was that the wilderness was not uninhabited. There were people groups in cities clustered throughout the wilderness. And when they saw two to three million Israelites marching towards them, they got nervous. And what they heard from the, from the neighboring peoples was every time these Israelites come and want something and we don't give it to them, their God is stronger than our God and they win. So they were gaining a reputation that where the Israelites are marching forward, you don't mess with them, you don't get in their way, you give them what they ask for because their God is not messing around. Balak happened to be the king of the Moabites, and Moab was dead set in the, in the, in the pathway of where Israel was coming. And he was a smart king, so he got nervous. He said, we've got to do something about these guys coming our way. So he figured if they fight with the strength of their God, I've got to fight fire with fire. And so he hired a prophet named Balaam, and he said to Balaam, look, you're a prophet. You speak for God, and when you curse or when you bless, it works. So I'm going to pay you to curse Israel. Take away their little, little secret power. Be the kryptonite to their Superman. And so that's what they did. He offered a lot of money to Balaam. And Balaam's like, hey, check it out. I'll come work for you. But since I'm a prophet, I can't say anything other than what God downloads. I can't just make up stuff. So I will come and try my best to curse Israel. But in the end, we'll see what happens. And every single time Balaam tried to curse Israel, nothing but blessings would come out. And Balaam's like, check out this guy. What is going on? I'm paying you all this money, and you keep blessing them. You keep telling them how strong they are, how victorious they're going to be. And Balaam was getting nuts. He finally goes, listen, it's not working out. Just go home. I'm not even going to pay you because you did not do anything that I asked you to do. Well, Balaam is not just a prophet. He's a good businessman. So when he realized the frontal assault, the direct approach was not working, he got a better idea. He said, listen, Bela, come over here. I know this cursing thing is not working out, but I think there's a way to get to him. And here's the advice he gave Balak. Round up your most attractive women. Just get every single hottie in Moab. Get them all together and then send them over into the Israelite camp. And have them just walk around twirling their hair going, ooh, that's such a funny joke. And have you working out? Or, you know, just entice the men to take notice of them and then broadcast, we're very available for all kinds of things, including marriage. When the men start to fall in love with these Moabite women, have them entice them to say, hey, look, I'm always going to the tabernacle worshiping your God. Could we maybe just light a few incense to my God and maybe say a quick prayer to my God after we pray to your God for the food? Little things, little slips. And, and the, the Israelite men said, what's the big deal? Where's the harm in it? She's been coming to my side forever. Why not just dabble in her side a little? And so this is what happened. And in the end, what could not be accomplished through military might or by cursing was accomplished simply by leveraging the weakness that already existed inside the hearts of the Israelites. They could not be beaten by a full frontal assault, but in the end, they were beaten by the weakness of their own hearts. That's one of the lessons we learn from Balaam and this teaching is that many Christians, many followers of God will be very strong in repelling a frontal assault. They are good. And that's true of us as a church. We're very good at resisting the full on attack from the enemy at the gates. But then we end up losing to the enemy within. It is from the inside that a kingdom rots. It is from the inside that a house collapses. And that story has been told in history over and over and over again. 
What Jesus is saying is you have done such a good job stiff arming the enemy when they come right at you because you see them coming and you know what's what. But where you're weak is the blind side. The attack that will come from the place you think is safe, the thing you think is harmless, there's no danger to it. That is the very place where your undoing will come from. The things we minimize in our culture and in our life are the very source of the greatest destructive power to our souls. He commends them because he says, listen, there was a guy in your city named Antipas. He was one of my faithful servants. And even when the persecution got so hot that he was killed for his faith, you did not waver. You did not renounce my name, but you remained true. Now, It's not recorded in the scripture, but tradition tells us the way Antipas was martyred was they put him inside this giant brass bowl that was hollowed out, and they slow roasted him over a fire so that he cooked over a period of an hour or so until he died. I want you to think about what it's like to hear the screams, to watch your friend, and everyone saying, that could be you next. You sure you really love this Jesus guy that much? I don't know about you, but I think that that would really give me a little pause for reflection. Like, just exactly how serious am I going to get about this Jesus business? If that's going to happen to me, I might just recant for a little while. And what Jesus commends him for is he says, even when that happened, you remain true to me. So when the full frontal attack came, you banded together and you did not give any ground. And I think that's true of a lot of churches, a lot of faith communities, even a lot of families, is the frontal assault is easiest to repel because it's so obvious. And something about getting punched in the face makes you want to join hands with your friends and go, try that again, punk. Come on. Is that the best you got? And I know that's how Harvest is. Over the 20 years I've been here with you, I have seen us rally together whenever there is danger on the horizon. If it's facing one of us, we all try to stand together with each other. So when the attack is obvious, when it comes from the front, we're pretty good. Where I think we are weaker, just with every other church, is when the enemy comes from the blind side. When it starts with something so subtle, so seemingly insignificant. You guys have heard the story of the, of the boiling frog, right? How you boil a frog. If you put a, a frog in a kettle of water and you start turning up the temperature one degree at a time, that, that frog, because the change in temperature is so gradual, will not jump out of the water. It will stay in there and literally cook with a smile on its face until it dies. But if you drop the frog into a boiling pot of water, right away it will jump out. That's just the way the human heart is. When the damage is gradual and slow and incremental, we don't even know it's happening. Our guard is not up against the slow creeping disease. It's only up against the obvious enemy. So you can recognize the devil when someone's like, their head's spinning, pea soup is shooting out of their mouth. You know that, per- that, per- that dude's possessed. Stay away from him. Satan is in them. We're not always so quick to spot the times when Satan is really working in a person, but they're smiling, they're slick, they're good with their words. They, their words have a ring of truth to it. And you're like, well, that's not, that's not that bad, is it? What's the big deal? Here's another way of saying it. I don't think our enemy will win the victories against us with one giant cut from a sword, but with a thousand little cuts from a scalpel. 
I think that's the way that he will attack us. And that's why my challenge to us this morning is the same as Jesus' challenge to the church of Pergamum. Don't just be on guard against the obvious threats. But be aware that some of the things that will kill you will be the thousand little slices of compromise from a place you think is harmless. Let me give you a second warning Jesus gives to the church in Pergamum. Beware of wrong belief. Listen to what he says. Despite the fact that when Antipas was being cooked alive, you all stood for him. That's good. You stood your ground and I applaud you for it. But nevertheless, I've got a few complaints against you. And these complaints he has against them have everything to do with the way that they tolerated false teachers in their church. Where does compromise come from? What do you think about that? Where does moral and spiritual compromise come from? In the end, it always arises out of false truth, false teaching, false belief. I'm going to tell you right now, everything we do rises out of what we truly believe. We can claim all kinds of beliefs, but in the end, our actions always reveal what we truly, truly believe. A human being is not capable of acting apart from their beliefs. I I was visiting with one of the CGs this Friday that's not my group, but I was just sharing how when I bought a Lifetime membership recently, the only time I actually went to Lifetime was to take the picture from my photo ID. (laughs) That card never saw another swipe, and after a while, I felt guilty wasting God's money, and I quit. Now, here's the thing. When I bought the card, I was making a statement about something I said I believed. I believe fitness matters. I believe it's time for me to take my health seriously. That's what my mouth was saying and my pocketbook was saying, but what my arms and legs were saying is, I got tomorrow. I'm fine. The way I'd rather stay home and rest than work this body. And in the end, it's what I did that ultimately exposed me for what I believe because we don't do anything other than what we really believe. And that's just the bottom line of it. You can say you've got the right belief system, but your beliefs are only really demonstrated in what you do and do not do. And that's why Jesus was so up in arms against the bad teaching that had wormed its way into the fabric of of the church in Pergamum. He said, you think ideas are nothing. They're just words, thoughts, concepts, inconsequential, not dangerous at all. And what Jesus says, you have no idea the power of a bad idea. Have you ever said to your friends, guys, I think this is a bad idea. How many times did it turn out you were right? That was a terrible idea. Because out of a bad idea, out of wrong thinking, a wrong life emerges. You can't shake it. There's no way to avoid this dynamic. Jesus here in this letter also goes on to say, I've got this problem with these people called the Nicolaitans. And in this, in this passage, he says, you hold to their teachings. So he's got a problem with their teachings. But then earlier in his letter to the church in Ephesus, he also says, I've got a problem with their practices. Now, history doesn't record for us conclusively what the error of the Nicolaitans was, but we know this. Jesus hated both what they believed and what they did. He hated it. He thought it was an abomination, an affront to the truth. And and in the end, you really can't separate those two things, can you? What a person believes and what a person does are inseparable. That's just the bottom line. In fact... I, I just 
thought of an idea. What if we called people like these false teachers errorists instead of terrorists, right? They do their damage through their error. They've got it all wrong. And it's not completely wrong. It's usually mostly wrong, but wrong enough that what they do has terrible consequences to the spiritual lives of people. The Nicolaitans were were for sure zealous. They were eager to teach others what they believed. The problem was they weren't right at all. What they believed with such conviction, what they would swear to up and down was just wrong. I remember having an argument with the guy about something related to a Star Wars movie, and I could just tell he wasn't that big into Star Wars. I'm not a completely nutty fan either, but I went to see it when he first came on the theater. I mean, that's not something everyone could say, right? That's how old I am. And I just remember thinking, you're wrong. That's just not true. And he was so convinced that he was right, and it was frustrating because I'm like, I see how truly deeply you believe it, but you're just stupid. Just wrong. I mean, your conviction can't make a wrong thing right. I appreciate how zeal- you're willing to die for your version of it, but I'm sorry, you can't make it true just because you believe it with all your heart. I think Satan knows that the frontal assault rarely works against us. I think he knows that often when he kicks us in the face, we buy a mask and we're like, bring it. He knows that, and so Satan, because he's crafty, prefers the blind side, the sneak attack. He loves to come at us in a way that we're not on guard against it. In John 8.44, we're told that Satan is the father of lies, and that's what Jesus said about him. He's the father of lies, and when he lies, get this, he's speaking his native language. Do you ever know anyone like that? Well, you can't believe anything they say. Go on. We all know you lie all the time. All the time. You know anybody like that? Because what he's saying about Satan is when this guy talks, he can't tell the truth. His native language is to distort the truth. But the way he distorts it, he doesn't say, oh, hey, how do you like my white iPad case? You like it? That's too stupid. It's too obvious. So he he takes something and he borrows a little grain of the truth and then he builds this distortion around it so that he takes poop and he puts it in a pretty box and puts a bow on it and you, you take it and receive it like a gift. You take garbage and you take it into yourself because it's so pretty and wrapping. It's so attractive in its packaging and form. That's the way Satan gets his distortions of the truth into the lives of God's faithful. And when our guard is not up, he will always use things that have a subtle ring of truth. Think about back in the Garden of Eden when he was trying to entice Eve into the first sin ever. The very first sin began with a lie. Satan asked her this question, which has a little echo of the truth, but it's totally off. He says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Do you see how sneaky that is? God never said anything like that. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? No, and Eve, Eve, to her credit, goes, no, that's not true. He said we can eat from any tree, just not this one. But see, in the asking of the question, in distorting the truth just enough, the damage was already done. Eve gave the right response, but the nature of his twisted version of the truth 
was to do two things in Eve's heart. One is it made her question God's motives. Hmm. Why not this tree? What is God withholding from me? What goodness does he not want me to have? And so by distorting it, she began to question the nature and character of God, his motives in her life. But the second effect of that lie was it made her wonder, what's the big deal anyway? He said we could eat from every tree in the garden. And the truth is, the, tree on this, the fruit on this tree doesn't look that much better than the fruit on all the other trees. And she asked that fateful question that so many people who lose their faith will ask, hey, what's the big deal anyway? You know, I get that a lot when I'm talking with people and we're contending for the truth. It's like, oh, come on, Pastor Dave, I, I know what you're saying, but really in the end, is it that big of a deal what we're talking about? Why are you so agitated? Why are you making such a big deal out of this? It's just a movie. It's just a date. It's just another job. What's the big deal? And those are the words with which so many people begin to lose their faith. As a lie leads them to wonder, hey, have I been duped? Are we making mountains out of molehills here? Are we becoming Pharisees who, who make such a big deal out of every little minute detail? I think this is the way it works for so many. When they have that crisis of faith, it doesn't start with a bald-faced lie. It usually begins with something that sounds kind of true. Think about how, and we don't know exactly what the Nicolaitans were teaching, but I think evidence is very, very good that it was some distortion of the gospel of grace. This idea that gospel is the means by which God gives us grace and freedom, and many people who followed after distorted that message by distorting what grace and freedom means. Let me give you some examples of the kind of lies which have torn apart Christians' lives for centuries. Here's one. If Jesus forgives us so freely, then I'll just sin and ask him for forgiveness later. Sin doesn't really matter because it's so easy to get clean, right? Think about how you sweat like crazy at home, but when you're in the mission field and all you got is baby wipes, you try to stand very still. You're like, I don't want to sweat today because it's a little harder to get clean. So that's one distortion of the truth. If Jesus forgives so freely, then let me sin and ask him to wash me later. Here's another distortion. If I am not saved by works, then it doesn't matter that I do no work for God. Why bother doing good works if that's not what saves me? I'm just going to stand around and watch the show. Here's another one. If Jesus has set me truly free, then I am under the authority of no one. You're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. I don't answer to anybody because Jesus has made me free. And with that kind of distortion, many people have pulled themselves away from the community authority which God put in their life to protect them. They begin to think, why do these elders, these pastors want to control my life, boss me around, little understanding that that authority placed in their lives is for their protection and welfare, not for their imprisonment. But with that one little distortion of the truth, so many people have walked out from under the authority that God put in their lives for a reason, for their benefit. Do you see how it works? He will get to you through a side door. And you won't know that a burglar's in the house until he's creeping up to your bed with a stick in his hand. So let me give you one last warning that Jesus is giving to a church trying to stand faithfully in a hostile environment. 
Beware of privatization. If I could state it a little differently, I might add, beware of over-privatization of the faith. Look carefully at the indictment Jesus gives to the church in Pergamum. He's not saying that every last one of them is in error, but he's saying there are some of you in that church that are messed up, man. There are some in your church who believe lies that are abominations to me. And not only do they believe lies, they're spreading those lies to anyone who will listen. So the problem Jesus has with this church is not the presence of error, which you can never really avoid, right? In any group, there will be people who have it wrong because that's just the way human society is. The problem was not that there were people in error in their midst, but that the people who knew the truth were tolerating these lies and saying, what's the big deal? Leave them alone. Live and let live. Are we really going to get into a major argument confronting these people when what they say almost sounds true? We know better, but that's them. And, you know, so, so that's the way we feel about it. But Jesus has a problem with the whole church. He's indicting the whole church for the error of a few. Now, what's going on there? Because I think it's easy for us as American Christians to read that and be very offended by the inherent unfairness of that. You know, sometimes when I'm kind of losing my temper and one of my kids is doing something bad, I yell and go, all oh, you kids, just get out of here. And the innocent ones go, what do we do? Why do we have to get out of the room? And I, I understand that something inherently unfair about that. I know I'm doing it. I apologize to you kids. I, I know I'm doing it. But, but so we hear them like, that's not fair. He should just yell at the Nicolaitans. He should just yell at the false teachers and leave the rest of us alone. But he doesn't do that. Because he says, I can't look at the church the way you look at the church. I think our problem with Jesus' blanket indictment of everybody is that we are so American in the way we think of the church. And what I mean by that is this. American values are rugged individualism, personal responsibility. We, we're the culture that, that produce sayings like, high fences make good neighbors. We want to be together. We want to have community. But in the end, don't get crazy. All right, don't get crazy. Let's make sure we maintain our boundaries. I want to have you near me, but don't get so close I can smell your breath, man. Just right there. Keep it about there. And that's how we regard church. We think of church as a voluntary gathering place of independent individuals. Let me say that again. We think of church as a voluntary gathering place of independent individuals. Meaning, I'm not connected to any of you any more than I choose to be. I wanted to come here. I found you on a website. I walked in the doors. I choose to be here, and I'll choose the terms by which I engage with you. Don't tell me how to be here. I'm here of my own will and free accord. That's the way we in America think of the church. It's just a fan club of Jesus, and I happen to like you guys for now. Don't do anything to tick me off. So what we say to each other all the time are things like, it's your business. It's your, it's, your, it's your private business. We're so good at guarding privacy that I think many times we are in great danger of going too far, of over-privatizing a faith that was always meant to be communal from the very start. Jesus' rebuke is not unfair because when he looks at the church, he doesn't see 20 guys who are telling the truth and five guys who are in error. He sees one family with a cancer in it and no one's doing anything about the cancer. He says, look, if you really want to be the body of Christ, pay attention to the language I taught you. 
Paul wrote to the Romans, we are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. The language could not be any stronger or deeper. We're not just attached by holding hands. We're attached by having ourselves fused surgically to each other. I'm not just holding your hand. We had our hands cut off and our wrists got bound together in surgery. That's what we are. Whether you like it or not, that's the reality of the church in the eyes of Jesus is we are irreversibly connected to each other. And as a result, we cannot say things like, hey, am I my brother's keeper? Remember Cain after he killed his brother? Knocked him over the head, killed him. And God's like, hey, dude, where's Abel, man? And what does Cain say to God? As if it's a rhetorical question. What? Am I my brother's keeper? I wish they would have recorded God's answer because God probably says something like, yeah, yeah, you are. What did you think I was going to go? Oh, no, no, he's only your brother. Never mind what happens to him. If he's dead or alive, what's it to you? He's just your brother. God would never say that. What do you say? Yes. You say it rhetorically like the answer is going to be no. But the answer is a resounding yes. Are you your brother's keeper? Yes. Darn right, yes, you are. You are your brother's and sister's keeper. You know, that doesn't mean that we should be nosy and overly meddlesome. It certainly does not mean we should self-righteously judge one another. But it does mean we must have the courage and the commitment to each other to fight and contend for the truth in one another's lives. Because every self-destructive behavior is born out of a self-destructive belief. And I cannot watch somebody spiral down into self-destruction and still call them my family if I just watch. If my daughter suddenly decided the only way I have worth is to be skinny as a chopstick and she began to develop eating disorders because she believed she was always too fat. Oh, I'm only like 20 pounds, but if I can get down to 18 pounds, that would just be great. If she did that, I would not stand by and go, It's your business. I don't agree with it, but what are you going to do? I can't do that, can I? I cannot watch my family destroy itself through wrong thinking and ultimately wrong living and not say anything and still want credit for being family. I just can't do it. That's not what family is. And I know that's hard for some of us to grasp because we grew up in dysfunctional families where your own blood relatives are people you really don't care about. I'm saying brother, sister. You're like, brother? I have an earthly brother. I don't give a rip about him. I'm not even sure if he's breathing. But if he stops, who cares? I didn't grow up in a family, you might say, where we cared about each other, where we took responsibility for one another. But in God's family, the rules are different than the family you grew up in. Because everything that was wrong about your family of origin is right in the family of God. That's why it's such a gift to be here together. And what Jesus is saying is you cannot just say, well, that's those guys, God. What do you want from us? What Jesus is saying is I want you to fight for the truth. And when you can't win, expel them from your midst because they are not really family any longer. This family must be fought for. Its purity must be contended for. Because if we stop doing that, there's really not much reason to gather together. We are forfeiting the power of our being together if we don't contend for the truth 
in one another's lives. We stand the strongest when we stand together. And that's why when I take the trouble to call you and challenge you on something, when somebody else in the church does that, it's not because we're at home just talking about you behind your back and judging you. It's because you are our brother, our sister, and we see that you are on a track that goes to a very bad place. And because we love you and we honor what family means, we will say something because everybody else who's not saying anything, they don't care about you. They just don't care. Eating disorder, addictions, lies you believe. Who cares? Everybody just leave them alone. Let them do what they want. Is that love to you? Is it love that no one will tell you when you're destroying yourself? And so Jesus says, in the church, especially when the external environment is so hostile, you must, inside the church, band together and contend for the truth in belief and practice in one another's lives. Because when you do that, the church will arise in strength. And it will be preserved in even the most hostile environment. I think by the grace of God, we are a very strong church. I have every confidence based on our history together that when the enemy or life or fate or whatever you want to call it comes and punches us in the teeth, we'll get even stronger. We'll lock arms. We'll form a perimeter. We will defend ourselves and one another. I don't believe the enemy will beat us from the front door. But I think in some cases, he's already walked into the side door. And we're asking, what's that bump I hear downstairs? He will win the fight against us when we stop paying attention. When we stop thinking truth matters. When we take shortcuts because we think, who would blame me for taking the shortcut under the circumstances? When we believe that tough times justify bad living. And when we stop caring about each other enough to actually say something to rescue our brother and sister from sin and self-destruction. We get that place and the battle is lost. And it may not be as harsh as what they had in Pergamum, but I think we will live to see the day when the persecution against us in our own country will be unthinkable, intense. The writing, if you're paying attention, is already very boldly on the wall. Do not for a second presume that the America you were born into is the America you'll leave. I promise you, I promise you, that is not the case at all. And while we're asleep, the house will burn. So I challenge you, don't let down your guard. Don't dismiss distortions of the truth. Don't leave each other alone when you see one another falling into error and self-destruction. Because when we stop doing that, we will have lost. So I urge you, be vigilant, be alert. Protect yourself against the thousand little cuts of compromise by which the enemy wants to bleed us dry. Cling to Jesus. Fight for his truth. Love his family enough to speak up and to intervene. That's my prayer for our church. 
in response to the letter that Jesus has written to the Christians who are in Pergamum. May we be a church that will not die a slow death of compromise. Amen? Why don't we bow together in prayer? I think the right place to start is not necessarily thinking about harvest as an organization, but start right in your own life. Because in the end, harvest is only what we are. We are the church. So I think the first place to be examined, to reflect, is is there a place in your life where the side door was left open and unattended? Where the enemy has snuck in and is doing damage? Now here's the thing. You see the signs of damage, but you're not always sure why it's happening. Why is my life the way it is? Why now? What's happening? What is to explain the season of struggle and defeat? First place to check is, is there an area where you've just compromised and you've excused that compromise again and again? Where you said things like, what's the big deal? Why is everybody so agitated? Can't we all just leave it alone? And if you listen for the voice of God, I think what he'll tell you this morning is no. You can't just leave it alone because it's destroying you and you don't realize it. What you believe is destroying you. You've got to change what you believe and believe the truth. So why don't we begin there, just reflecting, is there a compromise in my life which is wreaking havoc on my soul? Why don't we just take a minute and listen for the voice of God? Let me invite you to reflect on one other thing before we wrap up here. Is there someone you love close to you in your life and you've watched a seed of error, of wrong belief, take root in their hearts? And since that thing took root, you've watched their faith slowly shrivel fade away you see the struggle you see the the lamp going dim but you haven't said or done anything I'm going to pray that God will bring that person sharply into our minds and give us the courage and the love for that person to say something Let's not watch the candle go out in one another. So let's just be quiet for a moment and listen for the voice of God. He may put a face in your mind's eye, a name heavily on your heart. Say, please don't just stand by and watch. Step in say or do something as an expression of love for that person. God, we acknowledge what you're saying in this letter. That truth matters and that all life arises out of what we believe. God, we know that the world around us will not help us see the truth or believe you. 
So we pray that you would be very visible in our midst. Fight for the truth in our church family. Give us courage and love to stand for what is right. God, we know that many times we will be shot as the messenger. Give us courage to fight through, stubbornness to fight through that, to love one another and contend for the truth in each other's lives. We know, Lord, that the enemy will not win the fight in a frontal assault. But he may already be winning the fight through the back door. So come and protect us. Raise a defense around us. Make us vigilant. Raise up for our church watchmen on the walls. Men and women who will vigilantly watch for error. Will speak the truth. Will lovingly challenge one another. We want the enemy to have no place, no foothold in this, your house, ever. He's not welcome here. He does not belong here. Help us not to have left the door open. For those, God, who are wrestling, struggling under the weight of compromise, where the the lies are so much more seductive than the truth today, pierce their hearts in a way that no one else can. Take the blinders off of their eyes. Help them to know the truth when they hear it. And give them a heart that loves the truth once again. We pray that you will rescue those who are losing their faith to a lie. And give them the joy of walking with you once again. We pray it in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.